This is the 12 Songs of Christmas. I'm Alex Rawls, and this is my podcast about Christmas music. Two weeks ago, I dropped my 100th episode with jazz vocalist Meryl Zimmerman. And in many ways, it was the perfect way to finish the first 100. I've always seen Christmas music as a way to get into a lot of interesting conversations about music and culture and the baggage we and songs carry. It's not just about Christmas. When Meryl and I talked, we got into the nuts and bolts of musicianship, talking about the challenge of singing Deck the Halls of Boughs of Holly in 7-8 time, but we also got into her experience growing up Jewish and how it impacted her relationship to the Christmas canon. And in the process, people she went to high school with and the people she's around today. The conversation was about a lot more than just a sidecar for the Christmas season. And that's what I wanted 12 songs to do. And on this week's show, I'm going to pull some highlights. Actually, check that. On this week's show and at least next week's show, because once I started planning this out, I realized I had way more I wanted to cover than I could cover with one episode unless I like kept you here for the next four hours. Anyway, I wanted you to hear some of the highlights from the last hundred shows because they make it clear why I'm proud of the show. And I think it'll make clear why I see the show as a year-round project and not just a part of the Christmas season. In my mind, these conversations do something I always try to achieve in my music journalism as general, whether at myspiltmilk.com or on other outlets. In an industry that can be very industrial, I try to make the people I cover a little more real and present art as a human response to the world around us and not the work of geniuses whose lives are so different from ours. The interview that made me think about this came a few years before I started 12 Songs. In 2008, I interviewed R&B singer Lettucey after she released It's Christmas Time. And the moment that stood out was her obvious pride when she told me she sang the Jackson 5's Give Love on Christmas Day in Michael's Key. Her excitement revealed that something I'd taken for granted for a singer of her ability wasn't a given for her. That answer and the conversation as a whole made the project feel more personal than I thought of Christmas albums at the time. They have been a music industry staple that I associated with celebrity far more than with music for most of my life. Talking to Lettucey gave me a reason to rethink the Christmas album. Unfortunately, I don't have the audio of that interview any longer, but here's her version of Give Love on Christmas Day. first episode of 12 Songs gave me a lot of what I hoped to find in the show. My first guest was Ben Schenk of New Orleans Panorama Jazz Band, who have found ways to bend music from around the world toward the aesthetics and instrumentation of New Orleans traditional jazz. He told the story of how an effort to play the minor key 
God rest ye merry gentlemen, on a harmonica while on vacation, led to their song, Christmas Like You Just Don't Care. Transposing it to the harmonica's major key made it sound so perky that he had to give it a street parade rhythm. And that led to the song. But I'm also interested in Christmas music as business, because all music made to be sold is ultimately a business proposition. And that's particularly true when Christmas music is concerned. Ben was up front about the role Christmas music played in Panorama's business. So obviously a riff on uh, God Rest You Merry Gentlemen. Yes. Uh, what's the story behind it? Oh, that's got a cool story. Um, I was, you know, it was my post-college backpacking trip around Europe, and I found myself in Wales, <clears throat> and it was December, and, I'm, you know, I was hiking through, uh, man, a really beautiful part of the world, Snowdonia, northern Wales, mountain region, and the only instrument I had with me was a harmonica. So I was playing Christmas carols on the harmonica and like, you know, joy to the world, no problem. Major key, you know, harmonica's pitched in a major key and um, the first Noel, I could find all those. But when it came to a minor key song, it just wasn't on the instrument. You know, it's a major key instrument. And um, so I said, well, let's play it in a major key. God rest ye merry gentlemen, let nothing you dismay. Instead of God rest ye merry gentlemen, so it, it has a whole different vibe, and that that idea just stuck with me. And then when it was time to, um, we started getting um, holiday gigs several years ago, and um, you know we have there's a few Hanukkah songs that we have, and and we worked up some Christmas. So I've been kind of cultivating uh, a little holiday book for us over time, and. Um, and so I just threw that idea in there. And when it was time to actually record a Christmas song, I thought that was just so silly. Yeah. That's cool. I want, to, I want to come back to the other uh, songs in a minute. But mm-hmm. did the fact, did the movement from the, major, from the minor to the major, mm-hmm. did that, how did that affect the way you arranged it? So I wanted to, you know, get the original melody. So at the beginning you hear Aurora on the saxophone, you know, and it's very dark. You know, I told her, you know, like, think of like a cathedral in England and, and like a very serious, you know, candles and, and you know, Doug's um, 
got the snares off and doing the press roll like a New Orleans jazz funeral. And, and then, because I felt like the, um, it would mean more if we then go into the major and so Patrick on the banjo kicks up to and then it's kind of a Caribbean pocket. When you take a song, I mean, mm-hmm. like this, mm-hmm. and you know, Chris, I mean, a carol and do it instrumentally, do you still think of it as a carol? Does yes. it still have the Christian connotation in your yeah, mind? Yeah, I mean, you know, these songs have such powerful, for me, association. I grew up going around, I grew up in Annapolis, Maryland. At the time, a pretty small town, and we would go house to house and sing Christmas carols and go to old folks' homes and stuff. And um, <clears throat> I always really got a lot of um, feeling, you know, from doing that and from, you know, it's a time of year when people really sing together, which is something that I love and never get enough of. So, so yeah, um, I'm not sure that other people in the band have that same association but I certainly do you know so when I hear you know hear Aurora playing that um that's what I'm feeling how do you in your mind how do like Christmas songs and Hanukkah songs Mm -hmm. how do they fit into sort of the whole panorama body of work well you know it's it's definitely a seasonal thing so we don't play them the rest of the year but it's um it's a chance to kind of shift gears. We usually do get some calls to do holiday parties or go out to schools and do a holiday program. We have a little holiday program that we do in schools. Um, but it's always a lot of fun to get called for a holiday party, like an office party or something. Um, and, uh, you know, so it's, it's like having this other book. You know, we play the rest of our book all year long, but then, you know, these... We probably have 15 to 20 holiday songs that we bust out once a year. Um, you know, I have a, an arrangement of Oh Holy Night. I've got, um, oh, you know, just like dip, a bunch of them. Um, what's the one? Uh, the First Noel, I think, kind of works as a like Dixieland type of vibe. Um, but there's a bunch of them that we just kind of have a little, like like a like a Rudolph, you know. Wow. Just like, you know, which is already sure. kind of a song in that vibe anyway. You right. Know? So it's a more contemporary song. Um, yeah. So it's just it's it's just a gear shift. Yeah. Really. The one thing I think was interesting that I was part of what I was thinking about when I asked that question is that, you know, over the years, you've, you know, you've developed a fair book that is actually sort of, that is tied to occasions Mm -hmm. that with the Panorama Brass Band, you have an entire body of work that's tied to Mardi Gras. (laughs) And as you've been working on the song of the month that Mm -hmm. you have done like more Mardi Gras songs or carnival songs, and you've actually sort of whether, whether intentionally or unintentionally, developed a fair amount of music mm-hmm. that's actually tied to specific seasons and right. events and uh summer, holidays. like we put out in the summertime this summer you know um yeah i mean that's the cool thing about the um monthly thing is that you really can't think about what's going on um in june we put out a like a wedding processional 
You know, because you know, that's people, a lot of people get married in June. Here it's more April and May, or May, you know, it's too hot in June. But, um, you know, but that, you know, you can kind of think about that. You know, what are people doing at this time of year? And of course, you know, summertime music is different than other seasons. So. Well, and I'd also think that has to be sort of one of the rewarding features of mm-hmm. working in a specific city for as long as you have yeah. is that you've actually sort of developed a relationship with the city yeah. to a point where your music is actually in sync with its existence in its day-to-day life. Yeah, and the rhythms and the cycles. Yeah, yeah, it's very rewarding. I mean, that's the thing that, um, you know, about, I mean, we've been in business for going on 23 years, and you know, you go around these cycles enough times that um, they become part of your, you know, your thing. Your just kind of what you do and, and how you go about it. For me personally, one of the big moments early in the run of 12 songs was Americana singer Robert Earl Keane agreeing to talk to me for the show. At the point when he said yes, I was in the process of getting a few episodes in the can and didn't have anything online for him or his management to go on except my name. I had interviewed Robert for a jazz fest in New Orleans once, but I figured that he had been interviewed enough that he wouldn't remember our 45 minutes together, but I I guess I was wrong or he's simply generous with his time. Whatever, I appreciated him agreeing to talk to me, and that episode made it easier to book the whole first season when I didn't have much of a track record. I met Robert backstage at Tipitina's and talked to him while the rest of his band soundchecked. That normally sounds like a way to get a mediocre, distracted interview, and it had been for me enough times in the past that I usually avoid such situations. Again, though, He was great, locked in, engaged in the conversation. We discovered that we grew up in the same suburb in Houston at the same time, though he was in junior high while I was in grade school. That led to the shared realization that chestnuts roasting on an open fire means nothing to either of us because we didn't have chestnuts, let alone roasting ones, in Sharpstown. Like so many people with a popular Christmas song, Keen has had to live with the impact of his Merry Christmas from the family. And we talked about that. Mom got drunk and dad got drunk At our Christmas party We were drinking champagne punch and homemade eggnog Little sister brought her new boyfriend He was a Mexican We didn't know what to think of him Till he sang Feliz Navidad Feliz Navidad When you wrote... um Merry Christmas, uh, Merry Christmas from the family. Mm-hmm. Were you thinking about writing a Christmas song? I was not. I was writing a 
I was writing uh, for a record that was the record um, that I made after Bigger Piece of Sky uh, was the record Gringo Honeymoon. And I was in Nashville at this little apartment and banging out songs. And just I was just there by myself, and I was just playing and playing and, you know, really barely doing anything but, you know, um, making a cup of coffee and, and a breakfast taco or something. And I just sat there day after day writing songs. And I got to a point where I was, you know, I wouldn't say I was burning out, but I definitely was suffering from some kind of writer's block. And it was in November. And I sat there and I thought, well, you know, that's okay because I've got the rest of November to write this and then I've got December. And so, you know, I can be ready by the first of the year. The record was slated to start sometime early in the next year. And I thought, well, I've got all December. And then I panicked and I went, Oh no, nothing happens in December. Nothing, you can't get nothing done, which is always kind of frustrating for me because somehow, uh, maybe, uh, I don't know, whatever, but maybe it was because I, I was born in the winter or something. I, I kind of come alive sometimes in the winter. So I just like get ready and the end of the year comes around and I'm like ready to go. And then, well, Christmas and whatever else is going on and you've got to, Worked through that, and uh, I just totally panicked. And then when I got over my panic, I sat down and I thought, you know, just going exactly what I said before about chestnuts, I thought there's just, I don't even know what a chestnut is, you know? So I kind of strumming on, strumming on the guitar. I thought, I'm just going to, okay, I'll just take a break here. I'm going to write my own Christmas song because I don't have one. I, you know, growing up in Houston, Texas, I really could not relate to the way that the standard, the traditional, the beautiful Christmas songs were written and sung. And uh, I just was, I truly sat there and would strum and make up a line and laugh my ass off for like five minutes and think, oh, this is funny. And I'd like, oh, this is funny. And I really, I was having the best time. I got kind of out of my funk about writing songs and being serious, you know, and I was just having a really great time, and I wrote that, uh, I wrote the whole song relatively quickly, and, you know, at least by that end of that night, I had finished that song, and uh, then the next day, I went back to writing songs for Gringo Honeymoon, and uh, a few months later, um, uh, when, uh, when it really came around to making Gringo Honeymoon, I sat down with the producer, Gary Valletri, and uh, played them some songs and, uh, you know, had plenty of songs. And he said, well, do you have anything else? I said, no. I, I, well, yeah, Gary, I got this one wacky Christmas song, but I mean, it has nothing to do with anything, what, what we're listening, what we're doing here. He says, well, play that one for me. So I played it and he just, you know, really just lit up and just went, that's a song. And I went, oh, come on. No, really? He goes, no, that's a great song. And I just went. And at that point, I realized that was part of, you know, the magic of that song was it's like, it's kind of so weird and odd that people, you know, take to it. it they pay attention to it. And uh, they haven't heard anything like it in the world of Christmas music. No, that's true. So let's hear a little bit of it now. Mom got drunk and dad got drunk. Christmas party 
I, I, uh, I've heard lots of different stories about how people like this song or deal with it. I, one of my favorites is I had a friend from Uvalde, Texas, say, you know that song about the Christmas? Uh, I said, yes. Yeah. Uh, that song is a picnic compared to my family. I said, <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I get that kind of commentary. But, you know, also um, uh, there was a guy, uh, I believe he was in Nashville, and he said, you know, he's a, he was an attorney, and he said, at our law firm, every year we start December 1st playing your song the first thing in the morning every year, and we do it all the way up to the Christmas party that we have, and then we take off. So, oh, that's great. So, so you know, there's, there's some people that have a tradition built around this song even, so that's kind of fun. Well, it's got to be, that's got to, mm-hmm. you know, it's got to be great to have a song of yours, not just be a song that speaks to people, but a song that actually becomes parts of people's lives. <laughs> yes, it's an active song. Right? Yeah. 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 The, the proactive song, yes. Was your family anything like that? Oh, abs- How real is that? Abs- no, this, the whole thing is real. Uh, as a matter of fact, I had one cousin. I had a couple of people really mad. My, my mom, for instance, you know, my mom sort of uh, at the end of her life called up my Uncle Joe, who's in that song, and said, Uncle Joe, Robert's written the most horrible song. (laughs) And and Uncle Joe told me that after she passed away. So I'm like like covered with this guilt about the song. I didn't mean to hurt her feelings because my mom was always my biggest supporter. And and you know, I just loved her to death, and uh, she just and, and so I didn't know that it re- really you know got to her. But anyway, uh, so that was there was that that part of that that song. But everybody else in the song, uh, they're there's you know they are people, and people know who they are. And I even have the couple of them that go, I know that's me, and I go, No, that is not you. They think it, they want to be it, you know, they're not the one, but they want to be right. that, you know. So, anyway, uh, yeah, it's all, it's all there. I also lucked out in the first season to get Chris Butler and Mars Williams of The Waitresses, whose Christmas wrapping has become a modern holiday pop standard. I was talking with Williams about his Albert Eiler Christmas series of albums, which merge compositions by jazz sax player Albert Eiler with Christmas music. But while talking to him, I had to ask about The Waitresses track. Here's Chris Butler, who wrote the song to start the story, then Mars will add his two cents after that. A ZE or Z Records was um, an imprint, uh, kind of a boutique imprint um, uh, led by Michael Zilka 
and Michael Esteban, Z-E. Um, wow. It was in New York, uh, early 80s, mid to, to mid 80s. Um, very selective about the 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 roster. Um, kind of a collection of oddballs, but um, a a a. Uh, in, in interesting stable of people, King Creole and the Coconuts, um, who were uh, a fantastic um, show band, um, versus Alan Vega from the band Suicide, who was completely um, uh, avant-garde, esoteric, uh, uh, very outsider. Um, a, a, a label that also tended to book people who, or to, to sign people who were um, kind of a, a, had a dose of the European avant-garde or, or could be could be popular internationally. We, the waitresses, were kind of an exception. We were a Midwestern band, um, um, imaginary band at first in, in, the, in the Akron area. Then I moved to New York and um, uh, Patty came and we put together uh, a real band of, of other Midwesterners, um, uh, transplanted Midwesterners, because they worked real hard. And we were we were kind of more of a conventional, you know, put the band in a van and tour um, uh, entity. Um, but uh, we had um, recorded uh, our uh, um, uh, a flip side to I Know What Boys Like called No Guilt. And um, it did reasonably, the I Know What Boys Like single did reasonably well. And um, we started out on Antilles, which was a subdivision of Ireland. And then we're kind of, our contract was kind of sold or shifted over to ZE. And Michael Zilka suggested, you know, hey, let's, let's make an album. Um, so we did, but they had lost their distribution from uh, WEA, Warner Brothers. Uh, and we were in limbo a bit, so we had a single, an album in the can, and eventually it, it, it uh, was released. Um, so I think I think it was the spring of '81. I'm not sure about that. Um, and it, it did reasonably well. And uh, sometime in August of 1981, Michael suggested. Uh, why don't we do a Christmas record with a stable of artists, each one contributing a, a Christmas song? Now, it was kind of a curious idea because, uh, you know, they were pretty much, we were pretty much oddballs, uh, and all the artists were kind of unique and quirky, and you didn't get a warm, fuzzy feeling from people like um, Alan Vega, uh, necessarily. But um, people were gung-ho. We were gung-ho, uh, although I grumbled a lot because uh, we were very busy and I didn't have a whole lot of material and nothing really lying around and had basically two weeks to come up with a Christmas song. Um, stole a little bit of uh, riffing from here and a little bit of lyric from there and was literally uh, writing uh, the lyrics, finishing the lyrics in the taxi cab over to Electric Lady uh, Land Studios on St. Mark's Place. That's Jimi Hendrix's place um, in New York. And uh, we had kind of rehearsed the song. It was very loose. Um, I think we spent two, maybe three days recording it, you know, again, working on the lyrics 
in the control room, Patty being very um, supportive and uh, being a trooper and, you know, uh, making editorial changes right away. And uh, we uh, finished it, turned it in, and promptly forgot about it because I, 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 I thought the whole idea was kind of, you know, weird. And, uh, well, whatever. We had a lot of work to do. So we kind of parked it over to the side and just 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 forgot about it I remember us getting together actually I think if I'm remembering correctly it was a long time ago so it was like 1980 or something like that or 81 um I remember that we were recording Square Pegs for the Square, Be Square Pegs uh, theme song for the television show, Jessica Parker right, and Jamie Gertz. And after we recorded that, we were in the studio, and Chris had mentioned that Z Records wanted to do this Christmas song, and he had this idea for doing the song. So we did it within that session, or at least we started coming together with it. I don't know if we actually started recording it then. We might have put down the basics or we might have put together the song, though, at that session. At least I think that that's when we did it. Um, but I remember then going in and putting my parts down at Electric Lady Studios in New York City. Um, so this might have started in Los Angeles during the square peg session and coming up with the arrangement of it. And then I know my recording went down at electric play studios in New York. And, and so, I remember doing, yeah, I remember doing that, the, you know, uh, coming up with the horn parts on it. And then I brought in the trumpet player from this group, the swollen monkeys that I was in at the time, Dave Buck, who unfortunately isn't with us anymore from a motorcycle crash. But he, uh, I, I wanted to have the trumpet on there. I was hearing like more fanfare Christmas kind of things. So we played the horn line, and then at the end, we wanted it to get loose and get, you know, a little more happy and exciting. So we started just soloing over the thing, and then I said, let's do like a Dixieland seal. So we came out of it at the end and we started improvising doing little Dixieland blowing at the end. And that's what I remember of it. I was excited in the first year to interview keyboard player P.J. Morton. The Grammy winner at the time was better known as the keyboard player for Maroon 5, but the New Orleans born and raised Morton had a musical pedigree that ranges from gospel to hip-hop. I'd already interviewed Morton a couple of times before about other projects and knew he was a consistently thoughtful interview. When he released Christmas with P.J. Morton, I was confident that he'd bring an interesting point of view to the conversation and he didn't disappoint. I'll be home 
for Christmas You can plan on me Just please have snow and You, you said obviously Christmas was a big part of growing up. Just to make sure everybody knows, what, and, and what like I mean, in addition to just Christmas is a big part of sort of everybody's upbringing. You know, in what way also is it an important part of yours? Yeah, well, grow, one growing up in a Christian household and being a pre a, a pastor's kid. Um, two, my family being very musical. Everybody in my family being very musical, and it's part of the year where. A lot of our out-of-town family would come home, uh, come to where we lived, and uh, we would sing all, all night, you know, uh, during Christmas. So, uh, you know, in those two ways, Christmas and Christmas music were just, uh, you know, big parts of it. You know, this is the thing I think is when I talk to people about Christmas music and people who really connect to it, many of them have mm-hmm. the experience of simply of singing it and yeah. uh, and, and how and how important just the act of singing with other people what, you know, was for them at that time. Um, can you talk a little about, you know, just simply, mm-hmm. because I have to say, I am not much of a singer. I, I, uh, I actually mm-hmm. I run a, a Christmas caroling pub crawl, but I've often thought of it as essentially a punk rock <laughs> activity where we're going to take Christmas to people whether they want it or not. And, uh, I, and I think I sing everything in the key of L. Uh, so it's, you know, it's not pretty, but it's, a, but it's a good adventure, but I often want, but I often am kind of, you know, wonder the experience of singing for people who actually can uh, do it, you know, what that's like. Can, can you talk about that at all? What's so wonderful about that experience? Well, uh, for me, uh, so, so my dad, uh, in his genius, I didn't realize that at the time, but he, he, he videotaped every Christmas probably since like I don't know 1982 or something like that. And uh, for and, and because we had a musical family and it was encouraged, he would do a talent portion every year. So you'd see me from you know I went through all these phases of wanting to play the drums when I was four and five, you know, and then going to guitar for a second, and then finally landing on piano. So you see my progression of. Um, not playing anything to singing with everybody to to being able to really play. Um, but my uncle would play. He played on a bunch of Motown records. My my uncle's also a keyboard player. And um, so I guess for us, we would just remix those songs. We would make, you know, something that's supposed to just be simple. We'd have all these uh, complex harmonies and soulful harmonies going on. And, uh, you know, it would become gospel versions and, uh, you know, all these types of things. So it was fun. And I think because those Christmas songs are so well written, man, it's a reason they they've been around and they stay around. Um, and they're hard to beat, you know, when people try to do originals, it's hard to beat those classics. Um, I think it's because they're so well written. So when a song is good, then you can remix it and it's still good, good, you know? So that was my experience was like, um, making, making those, those simple Christmas songs ours. Sure. I'm going to come back to that remix idea because obviously it's a big part of this album. Uh, but at the same time, I wanted to pick that did the experience of, of those, um, you know, of these Christmases and these like 
being being filmed, being videotaped early on, and and essentially remixing. Do you think that was the start of you just thinking about becoming a professional musician? Like you mean sitting well, around the piano during during the holidays? Yeah, I mean at least your consciousness of yourself, not just as not just as you know as a member of the family, but your consciousness of yourself sure. as an actual creative person. Yeah. Yeah, I became I became the guy, you know, like before I was younger and I c- couldn't really play. And then eventually I became the guy who was on the piano leading, the, you know, leading the charge. So I guess so. Yeah, I, I think I, I actually between church and that, um, I definitely think that gave me a perspective of, of, man, I can really I can really do this. You know, I'm leading these because, you know, I looked up to my uncles and aunts and my and, and my dad you know, as, as, as great musicians. So once I was amongst them and like holding my own, it definitely gave me the confidence to know that, you know, maybe this is a real thing for me. Another pre-12 songs interview that made me think this show was a good idea was a conversation I had with Thomas Lauderdale of the Lounge Orchestra, Pink Martini. When they were coming to New Orleans to perform on a tour with the descendants of the Von Trapp family singers of Sound of Music fame, we finished the interview comparing notes on Christmas music, even though it had nothing to do with the story or show. I interviewed Thomas for the podcast, but tech issues rendered it unusable, which thankfully has only happened a few times. When we finally did get an interview to take, we had a good conversation, and he was frank in his assessment of the place of Pink Martini's joy to the world in the band's business. holiday music and so when Starbucks of all organizations Starbucks actually sort of commissioned our holiday album and they said they said that they would buy you know like 
50,000 copies if we, or 100,000 copies or something like that, if we, if we did one. So, so we did. And it, 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 um, uh, it, it certainly uh, has sold really, really well. Uh, the, the saving grace of it is that I love all the, most all except one of the songs I like. Um, the holiday album. And I love holiday music. And I really thought that it was an opportunity to, uh, to explore holiday music from a Pink Martini's perspective so that it wasn't just about Christmas, but it was also about Chinese New Year and Hanukkah and um, you know, songs in Arabic uh, and um, New Year's Eve. And, and so it became really a delightful project to work on. And I think, you know, for me, uh, one of the most amazing elements of that was the recording of White Christmas by, by Irving Berlin, uh, which was composed, I think, in 1941 or 42 for the film Holiday Inn. And um, I had just, uh, we had just started, um, we had just recorded a, 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 a song a cover of a song by Saori Yuki, the Father Streisand of Japan. And I thought it would be interesting to record White Christmas in Japanese. What I didn't realize uh, was that, that, that Irving Berlin, because he had fought during World War II, had, had actually specifically forbade that song being sung in Japanese. Um, the amazing thing was that, that uh, we... Uh, uh, I think I think Michael Feinstein may have actually helped uh, help the conversation happen. So we were able to talk with the the, um, uh, the the Berlin estate, and and they they went ahead and gave us permission. And so it's the first time actually White Christmas has ever been sung or performed in or recorded in Japanese. Wow! So had you already had you already had it recorded? When uh, when you found this out, or were no, you... I don't think we had we did, hadn't recorded. Uh, we no, I don't think we. Uh, I, I think we, we waited for permission first, and then and then uh, and then we got it after a bit of negotiation. So um, for me, that was that was a really great moment to be able to you know perform this song that is probably the best known Christmas song there is um, in, in, uh, in Japanese for the first time well, with, with Sour Yuki, who we then went on to uh, collaborate and do a whole album with uh, our Japanese album, 1969, which was Sour Yuki's comeback album in Japan. Oh, cool. I love that version of Mashke Nara. Yeah. You know, you know, who actually did that first in Japanese was Astrid Gilberto. Oh, really? So she recorded in 1969 this uh, 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 album uh, uh, in Japanese, actually. Astrid Gilberto's Japanese album. And, uh, uh, and I loved that version of Masquerada. And, and since, the, uh, since the album was all about sort of hits from 1969, which is the year that Saori Yuki got her start. Mashkinata, since that had been recorded in Japanese in 69, we were able to to uh, uh, convince the, the 
people at Sony Japan to to uh, put it on the album. Oh, that's great. Let's finish the first part of a look back at the first hundred episodes with the acoustic duo Lowland Hum. Lowland Hum are Lauren and Daniel Gones, who have made the hashtag Quiet Music their conceptual calling card. They're from Charlottesville, Virginia, and we talked about that and about their lovely cover of Christmas Time is Here from the soundtrack to A Charlie Brown Christmas. I don't remember what in their music or our conversation made me ask them about their faith, and it's not something I ask everybody about. It came up organically in the conversation, though. And even though it's not the first lens I look through when examining Christmas music, it's important to go down those alleys when they make sense because the spiritual component of Christmas music can't be denied. Once we opened that door, Daniel went through it. Really what we did when we started arranging songs for the Christmas album was we were we started trying to play them a way we'd never heard them played. And if it started feeling like there was momentum in that idea, we tried tons of different Christmas songs before we started recording, just kind of playing through them and trying different time signatures or chord changes or yeah, turning it to minor or major and trying to feel out um, you know, where what what arrangements of this song could we inhabit? Um, that aren't exactly what we've heard before. There's so many great Christmas recordings that, um, you know, in fact, in the back of my mind, I was thinking if we can't find a full set of songs that we can inhabit, um, there's plenty of great Christmas records out there and we just won't make one. Um, and so, yeah, I do think that was that joy to the world. When we first played it in that, with those kind of more tense chords or, or even kind of minor kind of things shifted to minor it, it was just it just felt um i don't know we felt like we could be in it be at home in it so as i was preparing for this conversation i saw references to your faith if you don't mind me asking are you christian yeah we are i think um that can mean a lot of different things sure. but we do have contemplative practice and we do think um we do know that that or we do believe that god is real and and you know, we believe in the Christmas story, and um, I think for many of the people that we know who don't, many of our friends don't share our faith, and, and much of the language surrounding faith to them sounds like hatred, which has been, it's very painful, but it also, we, we try to be very careful in how we talk about it because of that. Sure. Yeah, the, um, I mean, part of the reason I ask is in part because so few people I talk to 
either are or if they aren't or if they are they're they're guarded about it which is understandable in the in the you know in the uh, popular music context that you know being that being a christian uh, being an artist who is a christian too often means it's conflated to be a christian artist and that becomes sort of the the end of the story and uh and becomes drastically limiting in terms of who's listening right so, totally. so i understand but but and that's and why I want to give you the option, but ask before I talked about it. But how did your position? How, how did that affect your choice of songs uh, for the album? Hmm. I think, um, yeah, that's a really good question, and thank you for your sensitivity on that. I think, um, I think, I think the way that our faith affected the the songs that we chose, um, a lot of the a lot of this kind of triumphant and um really like honestly really joyful and celebratory recordings and treatments of the hymns um uh, christmas hymns and christmas songs uh did, they really um almost impede our ability to lean into the advent season or trying to really think about the power of that story. Um, so I think, you know, some of our favorite Christmas records are that, uh, Seeger sisters Christmas record. If you've heard that, yes. um, that's one of our favorites. And, and we love, uh, John Fahey's, um, guitar Christmas records. Um, but these ones that create more of a kind of more of a contemplative space, uh, and where there is more room for things all along the spectrum. We were trying to create a record where people at all different places in that spectrum would feel welcome. I don't know if we've just like had a, a sobering couple of years or something, but I think we've just more recently found a lot of Christmas hymns and Christmas songs to often, I, I, the tone often feels kind of manic. I think we were trying to choose songs that, that like Daniel said, um, accommodate, accommodate more emotions on the spectrum. And, and even lyrically, even, even though some of them lyrically, I feel like, do have a very joyful tone. Um, we just wanted to make music that made space for, for other things. Because um, even the story, the story of Christmas is like one that has a lot of, scary, mysterious, hard things in it, um, and joyful, beautiful things in it too. But um, we just wanted to leave more space for that.
When I started working on this episode, I thought it would be a good celebration of the first 100 episodes, but I'm not close to covering all the conversations I wanted to, so this is going to be at least two parts, maybe three. If you've been with me since the beginning, I hope you're enjoying this look back, and thank you, by the way. So it's been gratifying to have people with me all along the way. If you've gotten the game later, I hope this makes you curious about those episodes that you haven't heard, because there's a lot more to them than just these moments. Thanks to all my guests for their time in the talk, and thanks to you for listening. If you haven't already done so, follow, subscribe, or do what you have to do to get 12 songs in your podcast feed. These days, we're everywhere you get your podcast content. If you're an Apple person, I won't look askance at a five-star review. All those things help the algorithms work in our favor and make it easier for others to find out what we're doing over here. If you have a digital assistant, you can ask Siri or Alexa to play the 12 Songs of Christmas podcast and the machines can take it from there. I just mentioned Lowland Hum, and I got into them because I love their version of Christmas Time is Here from A Charlie Brown Christmas. That song filters through uh, pretty much the whole show, the whole run, uh, 100 episodes. People keep coming back to it. It's one of those songs that clearly has become a staple that's touched so many people. And there are some people we're going to talk to in the next few episodes, who also were focused on Charlie Brown Christmas and Christmas Time is Here, we'll go with theirs, which is a very lovely, peaceful one, and that makes the case for uh, their hashtag quiet music. We'll leave on that. See you next week. Mm-hmm.